The Pilgrim's Progress uh, is a book that was written in 1678 by the Puritan pastor, John Bunyan. Raise your hand if you've ever even heard of The Pilgrim's Progress, okay? Now keep your hand up if you've actually read that book, okay? Wonderful. So probably, uh, you know, fifth of us or so have heard of that book. It's actually regarded as one of the most important religious works ever uh, written. It's been published in more than 200 languages. And get this, the book has never gone out of print in over three centuries. And this little book, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan in 1678, that book has sold more copies than any other book in human history except for the Bible. Now that's pretty impressive. I suggest you read it sometime. Pilgrim's Progress is actually an allegory about a man named Christian who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And the story kind of follows Christian's journey as he goes through the trials and challenges of this life as he's on his way towards Zion, the heavenly city. Now in the book, one of Christian's greatest challenges and trials comes when he is confronted by Apollyon, the demonic dragon-like creature who in the story is the devil himself. I think we have a picture of this confrontation or at least a depiction of it. And in this confrontation, Apollyon waged a spiritual attack against Christian, making accusations against him for all of his past sins. Apollyon cursed Christian, and he threw at him all the fiery darts of guilt and condemnation with the goal of destroying Christian's faith. Now, I wonder how many of us can relate to that part of the story of Pilgrim's Progress. Here's a question. Have you ever felt despair or discouragement when you think about your past or maybe even your present struggles with sin? See, I think that many of us face times like that in the Christian life when we face that despair and that discouragement. Even though we know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven all of our sin. I mean, past, present, and future. That's Colossians 3.13. Even though we know we are forgiven and we are cleansed, often we are tempted to despair when we remember our sin. Whether that's sin we committed 15 years ago or 15 minutes ago. And we're just left asking the question, how can sinners like us serve a holy God? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How can sinners like me serve a holy God? See, I think that was the question on the mind and heart of God's people, Israel, after they had returned from 70 years in captivity in the nation of Babylon. Now, the whole reason why God sent them into captivity was because they were a guilty people. They had transgressed the law. The Pastor Pavone talked about that a little bit this morning. They had rejected the warnings of the prophets. They had broken the covenant that God 
made with them. And over and over again, God's people committed spiritual adultery. And they chased after the false gods of the Canaanites. They were a people riddled with guilt. And now they leave Babylon, they return to Jerusalem, which was a city that just lay in ruins. I mean, the the temple needed to be rebuilt. The city walls needed to be rebuilt. And most importantly, the people needed to be rebuilt spiritually. So in the book of Zechariah, God gave the prophet a series of these visions that were meant to bring hope and encouragement to God's covenant people, to assure them that God was not finished with them and that he was still calling them to be a kingdom of priests who would represent him on the earth. So what we get to do tonight here in the 21st century, 2014, we get to look at one of these prophetic visions that God gave Zechariah in chapter three. And as we do, I really believe that we are gonna find great hope and encouragement as God's New Testament people, especially those of us who feel weighed down by our sinful past or even our present struggles. So that, that, that's what our plan is for tonight. So y'all with me? See, I spent some time in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. Go Cowboys. I'm just kidding. Go Redskins. I lived in D.C. So I like to say y'all. So y'all with me? Everybody say, oh yeah. Okay, now before we look at the passage of Zechariah's vision, I just kind of want to set the stage for the vision. Now the setting of this vision takes place within the Holy of Holies. Remember what the Holy of Holies was? It was the inner chamber of the temple in the Old Testament. This is where the high priest of Israel would go on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, just once a year, and he would sprinkle the blood sacrifice to atone for his sin and for the sin of all the nation of Israel. Now, at the time that Zechariah is prophesying, the man who was the high priest of Israel was a man named Joshua. This is around 520 B.C. As we read the vision, you're going to see that it takes on sort of a courtroom feel, if you will. Sort of a, a courtroom drama, if you will. And, and the characters in the vision are, number one, you've got the defendant, and that is Joshua, the high priest. Next, you have the prosecuting attorney who is none other than Satan himself, whose name literally means the accuser. Then you've got the judge. The passage identifies the judge as the angel of the Lord, but this is no ordinary angel. This is the Lord himself. And that will become clear as we read the passage. And then finally, we've got the witnesses to everything that unfolds. That is Zechariah, the prophet, as well as some of God's attending angels. So as we read the passage, we're going to kind of divide it into three scenes. The first scene we will see is number one, the charges. Number two, the defense. And finally, number three, we'll see the verdict. The charges, the defense, and the verdict. So let's read verse one of our passage. And here's what it says. We'll show you this on the screens. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand 
to accuse him. Now, hold on there for a second. We could already see kind of the courtroom imagery here in the passage. It says that Joshua is standing before the Lord, who is the righteous judge, and Satan is positioned at his right hand, which in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament law, to the right of a person would have been the position of an accuser. Now, here's the thing. Joshua, like I said, is on trial. He's the defendant, but he's not on trial all by himself. As the high priest of Israel, he was merely the representative of the entire nation. But the question is, what was the charges? What exactly was Satan accusing Joshua and the rest of God's people of? Well, we'll see that down in verse 3. So let's show you this. It says, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. In other words, Joshua is standing before the Lord covered in the shame and guilt of Israel's sin. And Satan just kind of points his finger at Joshua as if to say, okay, God, there's your covenant people right there, your kingdom of priests covered in the shame of their own sin and guilt that they've committed against you, God. Now, I don't know if you all ever watch 48 Hours Mystery or Dateline. Anybody ever watch those shows? Am I the only nerd in this room? Okay. Actually, we've been watching kind of a marathon. No, my parents are the nerds in the front seat. Uh, Dateline, 48 Hours Mystery. If you've never seen it, uh, before it basically features like a, you know a, a, some kind of unsolved mystery or some kind of criminal court case, and they show you you know evidence and they show you footage from the trial, and you hear uh, you know the the um, you know the attorneys talk and they interview the witnesses. And I'm telling you, every time, every time I watch the show, in the first ten minutes, they're featuring one of the suspects, and I'm like, he definitely did it. There is no question in my mind, case closed. And without fail, 20 minutes into the show, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, wait a minute. It was the other guy. The other guy definitely did it. And without fail, by the end of the show, I'm like, no, it was the first guy. It's always the first guy. Now, sometimes the cases actually go unsolved. I mean, there's actually not enough evidence to convict someone. But in the case of Joshua's trial, that's not happening here. I mean, there, there is no question over whether or not Joshua and the people of Israel are, are guilty. There's no mystery to speak of. And all Satan has to do is point his finger in the direction of Joshua because there is no question whether he is guilty of the charges. Now listen, in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go through this process where he would bathe three times from head to toe. And after each time he bathed, he would put on these pure white priestly garments and then he would go into the Holy of Holies to offer the blood sacrifice. But, but what's wrong with the picture here in Zechariah chapter three? Do we see what's wrong? He's not standing in pure white linen and priestly garments. It says that he's standing before the Lord clothed in filthy garments. 
Now, it's interesting because the translation here in English really softens the impact because the literal meaning of the phrase is that Joshua is standing covered in excrement. Just imagine taking a set of clothing and putting it at the bottom of a porta potty at some construction site somewhere. You just leave that in there for, I don't know, two or three weeks. And then you pull those clothes out of the bottom of a porta potty. They would be smelly, dirty, foul, and offensive in the same way that Israel's sin. In fact, all sin is foul and offensive in the presence of an infinitely pure and holy God. That's the picture here in Zechariah chapter three. That's the whole point. Joshua may have well have bathed three times and have the appearance of being clean before the Lord, but as he is standing in the brilliant light of the holiness of God, he and his people are exposed for what they really are, namely guilty in the presence of God. And no amount of good works, no amount of keeping the law could have changed that. Even their righteousness is as filthy rags. That is the reality of Israel's guilt. And that is the charges that Satan brought against them. Y'all with me? Everybody say, oh yeah. Now when I opened this sermon, I said that sometimes some of us are tempted in the Christian life to despair when we remember our sinful past. Now friends, there are some of us who have an entirely different problem when it comes to sin. See, for some of us, we don't take our sin serious enough. And we're just kind of comfortable in it. We're not all that concerned about our own sinful dysfunctions. In fact, we can even make excuses for them or just overlook them altogether. That's been me at times in my Christian life when I've become complacent. That might be you here tonight. And that's usually the result of two problems. Number one, we have too high regard for ourselves and too low regard for the holiness of God. One theologian said it this way. He said, when we examine the scripture, we find that God is far more holy than we ever imagined and we are far more sinful than we ever fathomed. Friends, I, I hope you believe that statement because if we are just coasting and comfortable living in our own sin as a professed follower of Jesus Christ, then we are in a very precarious place. And and I fear for you as a pastor. And I'm just praying that the spirit would wake some of us up out of our spiritual slumber. And we will repent and we will run to God's throne of grace to receive mercy tonight. I hope some of us will think about that. But again, the charges against Israel and Joshua is that they are standing in their own sin and guilt that they've committed against the holy God. That's number one. So let's look at number two together. And that is the defense. Here comes the defense. Look at verse two. Watch what happens here. 
It says, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Okay, stop there for a second. What happens here is truly remarkable because the Lord himself comes to the defense of Joshua and his chosen people. And he rebukes Satan, the prosecuting attorney. Notice the repetition here. This is for the point of emphasis. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now, the other thing I want us to notice is that the Lord did not refute the charges, right? He didn't introduce some new or compelling evidence. He didn't refute the claims of the prosecution. He simply steps in and silences his accuser. But on what basis? If you're a lawyer here today and you're listening and you're tracking with how the passage is unfolding, how, on what basis does the Lord come to the defense of Joshua and his people if they truly are guilty? Well, it said it right here in verse two. It's on the basis of God's sovereign, gracious choice of Israel to be his covenant people. Isn't that exactly what the passage said? The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. In other words, God is saying, let me tell you something. They are mine. They are my possession. And I plucked them from the fire. That means I pulled them out of exile from the nation of Babylon. Why? Because I've got a sovereign plan for my people and my plans will not be thwarted. God's own sovereign choice of Israel is the basis of God's defense and his rebuke of Satan. So that's number two. We've just got number three to look at. So let's look at that, the verdict. Number three, the verdict. Verses four and five, I'm so excited for you to see this. It says, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Watch this. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Friends, the verdict is not guilty. And the Lord instructs his attending angels to remove those clothes and to put new clothes on Joshua. He went from being clothed in the vilest filth imaginable to being clothed in the purest white garments imaginable. Now check this out. In verse 5, Zechariah is the one whose voice is here in verse 5. He chimes in and says, let them put a clean turban on his head. I love this because Zechariah is watching this vision unfold and he gets so excited, he can't contain himself. He jumps into the mix and says, let them put a clean turban on his head. The high priest in Israel wore a turban that had a gold-plated inscription in the front that said, holy to the Lord, set apart unto the Lord. Then verse five again says, so they, the angels, put a clean turban on Joshua's head and clothed him with pure white 
garments. You see, through this vision, God was symbolically reinstating Joshua as the high priest of Israel and Israel as his people to be a kingdom of priests upon the earth. He took a people riddled with shame and guilt and he brought hope and encouragement to them with this prophetic word. Isn't that awesome? I said, isn't that awesome? I mean, you got to drink a Red Bull and read the book of Romans or something. Man, that is amazing. (laughs) Now, listen, I had my own courtroom drama a few months ago. It took place in the Fairfax County Traffic Court down near where I used to live. Uh, Pastor, this morning, you talked about running one of those red lights and getting the, the camera busted you, and they send it to you in the mail. I had to show up at court, and... The reason I did was because, man, I was guilty. I mean, I knew I was guilty. I knew I was guilty the moment that the cop pulled me over that day. It was one of those deals when you're driving down the road and the cop is literally standing in the road. Have we ever seen this? And he's flagging me over to pull over to the side of the road. And in a split second, I've got two choices, floor it and change lanes. But I've seen the show Cops. I know that will end poorly, okay? Or pull over, which... Of course, that's what I did. And I rolled down my window and I just let me out. I am busted. The cop walks over and then a couple months later, I'm sitting there in court and the judge calls my name and there's my accuser, the honorable officer. He was actually standing to my left, not to my right. And he read out loud the charges against me for my offense. And the judge looked at me and said, Mr. Pavone, how do you plead? And I said, Your Honor, I am totally guilty. And he brought down on me the full weight of my punishment. No leniency whatsoever. But I've been a very good boy since then. I hope you should know that. (laughs) And just imagine with me for a second. What if the judge looked at me and said, Mr. Pavona, I know you're guilty. There's no refuting the charges. There's no evidence to clear you. You are totally guilty. But I tell you what. I'm gonna let you go free. You're not gonna pay a dime of what you owe. As a matter of fact, what if the judge said to the whole courtroom, hey, court is in recess, we're going to Chili's, it's on me. You all walk clean, okay? Now, if you really wanna press the illustration even further, what if the judge said, as a matter of fact, I am going to ensure that your entire driving record is wiped clean and you will have amnesty for all future offenses. How cool would that be? Be awesome. Now, that would never happen, of course, right? But just track with me here for a second. What if the judge did that? Do you think that judge would sit on the bench very long if he let guilty people go free? Do you? No. Here's the even more important and bigger question. How could God be God and still forgive sinners like you and me? Like, have you ever wrestled with the answer to that question? How can God still be God? How can he be a righteous judge and let Israel and Joshua go free? How can God be holy and let sinners go free and forgive us? Now, I think that many people 
who believe in, in, in a God have no problem accepting the fact that God can forgive sin. In fact, anyone in the world who believes in some kind of higher power probably has no issue with the fact that God can forgive people. In fact, it sort of comes with the job description. But have you ever wrestled with the question of how can that be? How can God still be God and forgive sinners? Well, the answer to that question is that another Joshua would come about 500 years after this prophetic vision took place. And he would also be a servant of the Lord. He was a high priest. He was also a prophet and a king. And wouldn't you know it that this same prophetic vision goes on to point to the coming of that Joshua in an incredibly breathtaking way. Watch this in verse eight and nine. It says, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest. This is God talking. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Friends, who is that verse talking about? Joshua. Yeshua. Jesus. Same name. The branch is a messianic term. It's used in other places in the Old Testament. It's used to point to the coming of Messiah, Jesus. And friends, what is the single day in which the branch will remove the iniquity of his people? What day is that verse talking about? It's the day of the cross. When the pure and holy, spotless lamb would become the atoning sacrifice for sin. And he would stand or hang with arms outstretched on Calvary's tree. And guys, God the Father, God the Father would do the unthinkable. He would transfer the reprehensible filth of all of humanity's sin and place it upon the only one who knew no sin. You remember in the vision, the filthy garments that were removed from Joshua? Remember that, that were removed from him? Where do you think those went? They were held. They were reserved for the day of the cross, along with the accumulation of every God-demeaning sin humanity would ever commit. And on that day, they were draped upon the Son of God like a soiled garment. And you remember the clean, white, priestly garments that were placed upon Joshua? You remember those? Where do you think those came from? They came from Jesus. His righteousness placed upon God's imperfect people. His perfect righteousness placed upon imperfect people. 
so that God could forgive and accept sinners into his presence. This prophetic vision in Zechariah 3 is a picture of what's called imputed righteousness, the transfer of our sin upon Christ and the transfer of his righteousness to all those who trust him for salvation. That's how God can be God and still forgive sinners. That's why he can be a righteous and just judge and still accept sinners like us. It's because of Jesus. It's because of his willingness to bear in his body our sins on the tree in order that he might bring us to God. Now, let me just say, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ in a real and personal way, Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you raised your hand and walked the aisle or checked the box at summer camp that year. But your life looks nothing like a transformed life for Jesus. And you've got no spiritual affections for him and love for the son of God. And I don't mean some version of Jesus. I mean the Jesus that he reveals himself in the scriptures as the only means of coming to God and through the Father. If you're here tonight and you don't know this Jesus, I've got to tell you something, and it's going to sound harsh, but it's the most loving thing I can tell you, and it's this. You stand or you sit right now guilty in the presence of a holy God. And one day you will stand before him, and you will be condemned out of the presence of God for eternity, but there is a remedy. I'm telling you, there is a remedy. The remedy is to trust in what this Jesus, the branch, the Messiah, did for you that day on Calvary by bearing your sin in his body. And the moment that you say in your heart, I believe in you, Lord Jesus, and I believe you raised from the dead, the moment you trust him and place personal faith in him, God the Father will transfer the righteousness of his son to your account and you will be eternally forgiven and accepted and free and cleansed. And all I'm asking you to do is don't delay. Look to Christ. Like tonight, Look to Christ. And I hope you'll think about that. But for the rest of us, we've just got a couple more minutes and we just want to do some application. Y'all still with me? In his writings, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he would often refer to how the devil would whisper in his ear, accusing him of all kinds of sin. For example, the devil would whisper, Martin, you're a liar greedy, lustful, a blasphemer, and a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God, Martin Luther. To which Martin would respond, and I'm going to read for you one of his responses. He would say something like this, well, yes, I am indeed Satan, and you don't know the half of it. I've done much worse than that. But you know what? My Savior has died for all my sins. Those you mentioned and those I could add, but it does not change the fact that Christ has died for all of them. His blood is sufficient and on the day of judgment, I shall be exonerated because he has taken all my sins on himself and clothed me in his own perfect righteousness. 
praise God. If you remember, I said earlier that Zechariah's vision was meant to bring hope and encouragement for God's Old Testament people. Well, friends, how much more as God's New Testament people who live on this side of the cross, how much more should we receive hope and encouragement from this amazing passage? And there's tremendous applications from this 3,000-year-old text because I'll tell you what, just like Joshua the high priest and just like Martin Luther, and just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, the enemy often comes and whispers in our ears, making accusations against us for our sinful past, or maybe even our present struggles. And his objective is to damage and destroy our faith. You know, for some of us, I bet the Enemy was whispering in your ear today. He said something to you like, really? You going to church? After what you did this weekend? You think you could worship your Jesus after that? Or maybe the enemy whispered in your ear, you are such a fake. You think if your church friends knew about your past, you think they would accept you then? He just whispers in our ears. Friends, when that happens, we have got to remember that our accuser has been forever silenced if we are in Christ. And all of his charges have been rendered ineffective and they will never stand up in the courtroom of heaven. So we've got to stop listening to the lies of our enemy and start believing what Jesus says is true about us. Listen, guys. Neither your sinful past or your present struggles define you as a child of God. If you are a child of God, then Christ is your life and his life defines who you are. Now, at the same time, by God's grace, stop sinning in your present struggles. Be bold in repentance and believe that Christ is sufficient to overcome whatever struggle plagues you in your life. But you know, sometimes it's not even our enemy whispering in our ear. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. And we're listening to ourselves rather than preaching to ourselves. And we're bombarded by our own doubts and unbelief that spring up from within our own hearts. And we can spend more time thinking and dwelling about our own sin than we spend thinking and meditating on the promises of a Savior who has dealt perfectly with all of our sin at Calvary. Isn't that amazing that we can do that? That we could sit and wallow in guilt and shame rather than run boldly to God's throne of grace? Guys, in the new covenant, God says to us, I will forgive all of their iniquities and their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. 
I will remember no more, God says to you. So let me ask you a question. If God no longer remembers your sin, then what business do you have remembering it? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Amen? So what happened to Christian in Pilgrim's Progress in that spiritual attack from Apollyon? Well, by God's grace, he overcame the attack of the evil one. And here's what that portion of the story says, and I'll read it to you. It says, Then Apollyon had almost pressed him to death so that Christian began to despair of life. But Christian reached out his hand for his sword, saying, Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. And with that, Christian gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received a mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon wings and sped away so that Christian saw him no more. See, the next time the enemy whispers in your ear or he puts his finger in your face to accuse you of your sinful past, don't even give him the time of day. Simply look to Christ. Look to Christ and remember my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for reminding us of things that are true tonight. That we have a great Savior. That we are loved and accepted and cleansed if indeed we are in Christ. And though our hearts are prone to wander, oh, I know mine is, God. I, I, I feel it every day that... that my sinful flesh wants to incline me in a direction away from you. But I praise you that the spirit is there. The word is sufficient. The gospel is the power of salvation for those who are believing. And he who began a good work is faithful and just to bring it to completion. So help me and help my friends not stray in our fidelity to Christ, but help us run and cling to him, trusting him, believing his promises, and knowing that there are no charges that can be brought against us for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. No one can bring a charge against your elect, against your children because of Christ and his atoning work. Now, Father, help us respond to you by lifting up hearts and mouths of praise. In Jesus' name, and we said together, amen.